Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and return Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory or on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Additionally, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you receive a new episode of the show each and every week. Today, I am very pleased to welcome Adrian Benson to the show. Adrian served in Nepal from 1992 to 1994 as an English teacher. We talk about the simple life that she lived high up in the mountains in Nepal, how it was having a neighbor that was a water buffalo, and about the time that she broke her leg and got typhoid fever. Additionally, we talk a little bit about her childhood experience, growing up with two returned Peace Corps volunteer parents and living all across Sub-Saharan Africa because her parents were aid workers. The experiences Adrian had as a child led her to eventually write her new book, The Brightest Sun, which will be published on the same day as this episode, March 20th. We talk about the many stories encapsulated within this book and her reasons for writing it. I think you guys are going to enjoy all of her stories. So, without further ado, here is episode 35 with Adrian Benson. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Adrian Benson, and this is my Peace Corps story. Good morning, Adrian. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, doing great. Saturday morning, drinking coffee. Yeah, at your uh, dining room table. Uh, your your dog has calmed down. Uh, I think he he's bored with me now, so he's no longer uh, wanting Jumping. pets. Yeah. yeah. And the, the cats, I don't know where the cats went. The cats have disappeared, probably into the Tenley Town streets. Mm-hmm. Fabulous neighborhood of Tenley Town. Yay. You've invited me into your home to, one, talk about your Peace Corps service, and two, to talk about your book, which, when this episode is released, will be the exact same day that your book is published. Right, which is incredibly nerve-wracking at this point. It's a little bit like launching a child into school the first day and knowing that teachers will, will judge your parenting through how your child behaves, <laughs> <laughs> which is a whole different thing. But the, actually, this even feels more intimidating because, to be honest, um, <clears throat> when I sold the book, when my agent sold the book, he said, you know, I said something about this is the most exciting moment of my life. And he said, well, don't tell that to your kids. And I said, (laughs) any idiot can have a kid. Not everybody can write a book. Come on. So that's my take on it. (laughs) I love that. I love that so much. Well, we'll we'll table the book until uh, a little bit later. Because first, you know, since this is the Peace Corps story, we want to get into that. So let everybody know uh, a little background about you, what what you were doing before the Peace Corps, your childhood, which I find to be particularly interesting, where you served as a volunteer, and what exactly you were doing. Well, I should start at the beginning. Both of my parents were Peace Corps volunteers in the 60s. My dad was in India 5, and my mother was in Philippines 10. So they both served under Kennedy. And that meant that they uh, sort of dedicated their their lives to um, to overseas development work. And so my father eventually joined USAID. Um, and as a foreign service officer in USAID, uh, that took him to sub-Saharan Africa. So my childhood was spent from about the age of four until 16, following my dad's career um, across sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I came back to the States when I was 16. Uh, They were still in Africa at that time. They were in Cote d'Ivoire. And I went to boarding school for the last two years of high school um, and then college. And then after that, I think my parents probably hypnotized my brother and I in some weird way as we were growing up uh, because it never occurred to me not to join the Peace Corps. Um, And my brother, I always called him the the black sheep of the family because he didn't. He became a lawyer. So... (laughs) So there you go. I served in Nepal. I went right after college. So 1992 to 1994. 
And I was an English teacher and teacher trainer in a little village in the Annapurna foothills, which was, it was an amazing time to be in Nepal. And it was a beautiful place. And I, it wasn't always easy as everybody who has been in the Peace Corps or is currently in the Peace Corps knows. It's, it's never, um, you know, there are times that, that are extremely hard, but I think overall looking back on it, especially from this distance, you know, it was great. I loved it. I really did. And I guess I would, you know, I, I, I don't think that my children, my, my children are not being raised the same way I was. They're Washington, D.C. natives, and they've never lived anywhere else. But hopefully I'm telling them enough good stories about Peace Corps that they might consider it later, too. Who knows? Mm-hmm. We'll see. So you grew up traveling around sub-Saharan Africa. Right. What countries were you in? Uh, Zambia, Liberia, Kenya. Kenya was for the longest. And then Cote d'Ivoire. My parents, that was actually when I was in boarding school, but I visited, I spent summers and holidays there. Um, so. Yeah, uh, we, we can hear if anyone's hearing the pitter patter of dog claws <laughs> across uh, the yeah. wood floor. This is a, this is a, it's a real podcast. Right. Yeah. This Filled is, with animals. Yeah. You know, I, I like it better. It's, it's a Peace Corps podcast. This right. is a very Peace Corps style. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And then when you applied to Peace Corps, did you have maybe hopes of going to Sub-Saharan Africa? No. In fact, I remember telling my recruiter, you know, I at the time, I think it's a little bit different now when you apply to Peace Corps, but at the time it was, well, you have to be flexible. If you're not willing to go wherever they want to put you, then, you know, that says you're not going to be a good volunteer. And so that was the sort of narrative that I heard. Um, so I did say that I would go anywhere, but I also told my recruiter when I was sitting in the interview, you know, I've I've kind of done Africa. I've spent a lot of time there already, and it would be lovely to have the opportunity to do something else and go somewhere else. Um, and at first, they wanted to send me to to New Guinea, <laughs> which seemed like an adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the very last minute, I my when my invitation came, it was for Nepal, and I'd always heard that that was a hard place to get because people went there. You know, people wanted to go there to, to hike and climb mountains, and I couldn't have cared less about climbing mountains at the time. So I was thrilled. And my dad had been a volunteer in India. So, you know, I grew up on stories of his his life in Rajasthan, northern India. And, you know, just because it was in the same region, I thought, well, that's great. And my parents were thrilled. I think the minute I got my invitation, before I even accepted it, they were planning their trip to come and visit. So, um, yeah, it was amazing. I felt very, very lucky. Mm -hmm. And what exactly were you doing in Nepal as a volunteer? I taught the first year. It was interesting the way they set it up at the time. I was assigned to a small village where I taught English as a second language to mostly elementary kids. I think it was grades three through six. It was a tiny little village school, agricultural school. Kids walked for, um, you know, an hour to two hours every day to get to the school. But then the second year, I taught in the village when I could, but they also sent sent the, the teachers around to do teacher trainings for Nepali teachers. So that was cool because I got to travel around the country. I went to Mustang, which is in northern Nepal, which is it's practically Tibet, which is a really interesting region. And then I spent some time in the Terai, which is the the southern part, which is actually more like India. So I got, you know, I got to experience a lot of different parts of the country. And, you know, it was just a, a neat way to do it. I don't, well, they don't have Peace Corps in Nepal anymore. But I think they changed it after that, not long after that, um, so that people were mostly just exclusively teaching in a village for two years. So Again, I think I sort of hit it just right, and it was a, it was an interesting way to do it. I mm-hmm. thought I was not a great teacher. L- let me put it out there right now. Um, I, I was a poetry major in college, so that was good. Um, want fries with that? I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly what I was expecting to do, but I, I, you know, they had me really teaching rudimentary grammar, and I, I liked it, but. Again, I, I realized fairly early on that teaching was not my passion nor my skill set, um, and I did my best as we do in Peace Corps. But uh, I never, I never had dreams of being a, a teacher after that. But it was good, and, you know. And it was interesting, especially the second year when I was quote unquote training um, Nepali teachers of English. So many of them had been teachers for years and years. I was twenty two, right out of my poetry degree. So that was a little bit. I think that's actually why they ended up changing it, so that they weren't having 22-year-old poetry majors teaching veteran Nepali teachers how to, how to teach. I mean, there was certainly some... We could, we could give them an idea of, of the way we do things here in the U.S. Yeah, you at least had experience... Yeah, being a student. Being a student, so you knew right. the so, structure. Exactly. So, you know, they did things a lot, a lot by rote. Um, you know, kids just memorize stuff. And so we could sort of give them hints about how to do things a little differently. But, you know, it wasn't a perfect system. It was mm-hmm. fun. 
but it wasn't a perfect system. And living day to day in a, a village in Nepal, what did that look like? I mean, you were pre pre cell phone. Oh my gosh. Yes, I was pre cell phone, pre email. This is shocking. Even in my college, we didn't use email. So it was like some people did. It was like new, like the super techie people knew how to do email. The rest of us were like, ooh, that's a crazy invention. I remember actually, this is a sad, pathetic story and shows my age, but I remember we got Newsweek every week. Um, and my mail was brought to me from Kathmandu, first on a bus for eight hours, an all-day bus to Pokhara. And then it was a big Tata truck that drove from Pokhara into the mountains where the road stopped. And then it was put on a porter's back who took it (laughs) about a day and a half walk up to the village above mine. I think they might have had a donkey to help with that. I'm not sure. It could have just been a guy. And then one of the students who lived in that village would run it down. And I never missed a mail packet. Not once, which is kind of incredible because even here in Washington, half my mail goes lost. But... um, I remember reading in the Newsweek about this new invention of rollerblades. Ah, nobody's going to do that. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. Of course, when I came back, every single person in the world was on rollerblades. So anyway, it was, I didn't have electricity. I didn't have running water. Um, it was an agricultural village. So it was a lot of rice planting. And um, I lived in a little house that was separate from the main family house, but in the same kind of compound. And it was two rooms. It was nice. It was a it was a nice little place. And underneath, I had a, a roommate who was a water buffalo. Um, he lived <laughs> underneath me. It was very noisy. But it was you know it was very very simple. And I think um, you know again it was it was very much dependent on the growing season. So during the rice harvest, there would be no kids at school. During the rice planting, there would be no kids at school. It was very very simple. And that part actually became very. It was lovely. It was it was a real sort of lesson in how to kind of slow down and um, and just be. You know, everybody went to sleep as soon as it got dark because what else are you going to do? I had a one of those Petromax lanterns, but I was too scared to use it because other people had told me stories about how they blow up. So I started going to sleep at you know six thirty in the evening too, <laughs> and that was that. And it was um, like I said, it was very very simple. But the family that I lived with was incredibly kind, and they really took me in. Um, and they let me help with rice planting, you know, and all the women would gather at the one public tap in the village and, you know, we'd wash our clothes every week. And, um, at the time I was 22, obviously I wasn't married, which for them, I might've well have been, you know, I was a spinster at that point. Like, you're never going to find a man, you know, you can't do your laundry and you're like so old already. And, um, but it was funny. And, you know, I think part of what I loved about my Peace Corps experience was just being able to, to share, you know, the differences in day-to-day life with the women in the village. Um, and I remember a couple times we'd be doing our laundry at the tap and a plane would fly overhead. And this is, was a very remote village. Nobody had even seen, literally nobody had even seen, or people had, who had not traveled outside of the village had never seen a wheel. Like there was no bicycles. There's no roads for bicycles. There was no, pe- most people had never seen a car. Um, so we're talking like, it was almost like living in the, you know, a different century. Um, you you didn't have tools that you didn't make. Um, You didn't eat food that you didn't grow, the exception being tea and sugar. Oh, and ramen noodles. (laughs) There's a ton of ramen noodles Um, and cigarettes. But uh, so it was was very, very simple. So we were at the tap one day and an airplane flew overhead. And one of the women turned to me and she said, you know, every now and then I see airplanes and I know that people ride in them from one place to another, but how do they fit? They're so small. And I realized it was fascinating because truly they, they, all, they didn't understand the, the sort of idea of perspective. And I tried so hard to explain, well, you know, it's, it's small because it's really far away. Um, but, you know, when it's, when it's in front of you, it's actually really big and a ton of people can fit in it. But it was that kind of, I don't know, even like sort of visual translation that was so far, so different from my own that it, it was fascinating for me to understand that that those are all learned things as well, um, which I hadn't really realized before. So, um, you know, and then trying to explain how, oh, you know, I can't do my laundry very well because at home we have this box and you put your laundry in it with soap and then you turn it on and it does it for you. And like that was just completely, um, completely foreign and crazy. And I'm not even entirely sure they believe me. But uh one of the hard parts about being a, a volunteer at that time in Nepal was that, A, there's a very strictly enforced caste system. 
um, which I think is is changing. Um, but also, you know, I taught sixth grade, and a lot of times by the end of the year, my sixth graders had been married. <clears throat> so the sixth grade girls often um, would end up, I can't tell you how many weddings I went to oh, for 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. And that was an eye-opening experience. And every now and then you still, I, again, I think, I think the Nepali government at this point, and we'll have to research this, I don't take my word for it, but I think those things are starting to change. Um, but again, it's, you know, the villages that we were put in were so far out. They're very remote. Um, people didn't, from my village, unless they were wealthy men, really, they didn't travel to the cities. Um, and vice versa, the Peace Corps, the Peace Corps staff uh, really didn't want to come out. <laughs> they were like, it's too far, you know. So I did have one Peace Corps staff member come out to observe um, in the two years I was there. But it was, you know, it was, it was hard to get to. Um, and my village, actually, in Peace Corps terms, wasn't even really considered very remote. But it was a, a day and a half walk up from the roadhead. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was out there. So, you know, yeah, it was, it was an experience. I think the first time I went out there on site visit, I told myself I'm never, I'm never leaving once I'm here because it was up this mountain and I wasn't um, – you know, I wasn't super great at hiking at the time. And by the end of my service, I was wearing flip-flops and, like, running up and down the hills all the time. And it's probably how I broke my leg because I got very cavalier about it. Um, but, yeah, I loved how simple it was. And the one thing I don't miss is the spiders. I did have spiders the size of dinner plates, both in my house and in the bathroom that they built for me. Um, and I finally ended up getting a mosquito net because I would wake up the first couple of months when I didn't have it, I would wake up and there'd be like a giant hairy spider, like on the pillow next to me. <laughs> and I've never quite gotten over that. I still have spider related PTSD. I think that Not is an that. image that is now burned into my mind <laughs> and all of the listeners. Thank you. You can thank me for that later. Uh, well, now I have an, I have an excellent picture now of your service of the community you were living in. Your neighbor was a water buffalo, right? Uh, you said that your community had never seen a wheel, uh, which, I mean, that just puts a lot of like context into right. into your service. The the food in Nepal, other than rice, you said they were growing rice. I mean, so I, I know I've had Tibetan food. I've right. had Indian food. Yeah. What's Nepalese? Uh, it's closer to Indian in the sense that it's a lot of rice and lentils, but there's very few spices in the mountains. You know, Indian food might be very sort of pungent and spicy. Nepali food is is more a, a simplified version of that. So our daily diet was a giant pile of rice. There was always rice. And then lentils, you know, a little sort of lentil gruel almost and then but very simple, not not particularly spiced. And then during the different seasons every now and then we'd have a pumpkin, so my ama would make like a pumpkin um, a pumpkin dish with, uh, but again, it wasn't particularly spicy, but you kind of mush everything together. And every now and then the water buffalo would, um, we'd have water buffalo milk that we would pour on it, which sounds bizarre, but was utterly delicious. And somebody should go into business selling water buffalo milk because I don't like regular milk, but water buffalo milk is really good. So it was very, very simple, but it became, I mean, it was addictive. I still crave it. And I think there's a lot of Nepal volunteers who would, you know, give their eye teeth for dalbat, which is what, what the dish is called. Yeah. And it was, again, it was very, you could really tell what season you'd have soybeans in soybean season. They would sort of toast them and eat that for a snack. You'd, we had millet, millet, um, chapatis. Um, and then in Tibet, they make alcohol from millet, but mm -hmm. they didn't in my village. They did make alcohol, however, out of rice, um, and it was the kind of stuff that you might find, you know, in people make here from car parts or in their bathtub. I mean, it was hardcore. It was like drinking, rubbing alcohol. But um, and the women weren't allowed to drink. They didn't really drink in public. But did they drink in private? They drink in my yeah. house. <laughs> they would come to my house. And actually, that was very, very fun because they would come and it was kind of like a little secret club. The women in the village would come and that's when they would smoke and that's when they would drink alcohol and they would bring these little snacks that they'd made that, you know, their husbands didn't eat. And so, um, you know, that was, that was fun. We, we definitely partied hard village style. <laughs> so your house was a little den of sin. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And then in, in the tea, did they have used the, um, water buffalo like milk or did they make like a, because 
I know in that region, yeah. uh, they add like more or less like butter right. to, to tea or coffee. And then it's been translated into the United States right. of being like bulletproof coffee, which I right. have consumed and do and do drink. Do you like it though? It's it's an acquired taste. <laughs> yeah, that it is. And once you get used to it, like okay. the, the effect on your body, like that's what right. I like more than the taste. I mean, okay. I prefer just really good black coffee. Right. Um, it's more of what it does, like the health and right. uh, neurocognitive benefits of right. it. Uh, yeah, but- I've tried bulletproof coffee too. I'm not not sold, but uh, they in my village they actually had um, we had regular milk. So they had um, where were they getting that from? Where were they getting that from? Or maybe it was water buffalo milk that they put in the coffee. It must have been or the tea because we had really milky, sugary tea all the time. Okay, um, I had Peace Corps would actually send um, send food supplements. I think this is a worldwide phenomenon in Peace Corps, but the men in Nepal, the male Peace Corps volunteers lost weight, all of them. Mm-hmm. And they actually got extra money for food. Like once they lost 10% of their weight, <laughs> 10% of their body weight, Peace Corps would send them jars of peanut butter and, you know, all this other sort of high calorie stuff. Um, of course, the women had the opposite problem for the most part. And that was fun. Um, <laughs> good time. But uh, I always had um, powdered milk, the red cow powdered milk. And when I had a sweet fix, I would just eat it powdered from the tin, which now sounds disgusting. But there was very little, there was sugar, but there was, you, you couldn't get a cookie or you couldn't get a chocolate bar. So you had to make do. Oh, yeah. um, I, I used to eat spoonfuls of sweetened condensed milk when I was having a sugar <laughs> craving. So no, yeah. sh- no shame. Okay, good. Because sweetened condensed milk, that stuff is good. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure where I was going with that. Oh, the milk. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I guess they did have, um, well, they, we had oxen too. I don't know. Do oxen give milk? Well, I, it's funny that I never really. I mean, I, I, would, I would assume they give milk. <laughs> right. Anyway. I mean, the water buffalo is given. Uh, how, yeah. How, how different. I don't know if I could tell you the difference between. An, I think I could pick out it. If I had an oxen and a water buffalo. Yeah. Right. I, I could, I could, you could tell out. the difference. Yeah. 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 Water buffalo milk is really sweet and it's really thick. Okay. And every now and then, this is going to sound really gross. And I thought it was at first too, but it was delicious. When the water buffalo mom would give birth, (laughs) the water buffalo colostrum, like the first milk, Mm -hmm. they would take it from the baby and eat it. The the people would. And it was good. I felt a little guilty. Extremely high in fat. Extremely high. Ask me how I gained, you know, 500 pounds. Why were we all gaining weight? Um, Yeah, it is good stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was a rare treat, but it was uh, it was always welcome. Transitioning because uh, we, we've we've talked about I guess all the good things that you had of your Peace Corps service, right. uh, the the simplicity and the pace of life. Yeah. And you did mention uh, breaking your leg, but that right. wasn't the only sort of illness less injury. You you had a few in I addition few. to the the I guess the normal uh, Peace Corps. Um, right. Gastrointestinal right. distress, every kind of dysentery you can imagine, Giardia. Um, I had salmonella and I had typhoid and the typhoid and the broken leg are connected because (laughs) in a very strange way, um, I was actually selected to, as I was leaving Peace Corps, I had what another three months left and I was selected to help train the, the group that had just come in. So I actually left my village about two and a half, three months before my close of service date so that I could do that. So, you know, I packed up, you know, I had my trunk of stuff and a backpack. And again, I was a, about a half day walk from the district center where I usually spent the night when, when I was leaving. And then an entire day walk down to where I could catch a, a Tata truck, basically. And then the Tata truck would take me to Pokhara. And that was about a five or six hour drive. Um, and then you'd overnight in Pokhara and then take a day bus to Kathmandu. So that was the general, that was sort of how I, how I got from one place to another. So I packed up, you know, everybody cried. And, and in Nepal, they do something called tikka. So when they're giving you a blessing or whatever, they cover your forehead with red paste and they give you flower malas, which are sort of like lays. Um, so it was a big deal, you know, and I was covered with red tikka powder and malas and crying and the whole thing. Um, and I had hired um, a kid in my village to be a porter to help me get my stuff from the village down to the district center. And he was a deaf kid. They called him yeah, he was he was deaf, and so he had sort of a weird uh, um, place in the village. He wasn't educated, but really nice kid, and I wanted to be able to give him some money. And um, so he helped me with my stuff, and we were walking down again. It was I was leaving my village for the last time, and just thinking about everything. And um, 
partly probably because of the diet. I think I had a little bit of a calcium deficiency. Anyway, what I remember is all of a sudden I saw the sky turning over and I remember screaming, but I couldn't hear it. It was very weird. Like I was screaming and then I saw this kid's face. Remember he was deaf, so he couldn't hear me screaming there, but he, uh, (laughs) I just saw his face sort of floating above mine and I heard a snap Mm. and, um, and I was wearing flip-flops. That was not smart. These are like, you know, really rough paths. And um, anyway, I should have been wearing hiking boots. But so there I was lying on the ground and, you know, unsure what was going to happen in deep pain. I drank all my, I could feel myself sort of going into shock. So I, I drank my whole water bottle that had, you know, clean water that I had boiled before. Um, and I was rummaging through my backpack for some ibuprofen. I thought I, that would help. I don't know why. And but I ran out of water. So luckily, I happened to be sitting, you know, I'd fallen near kind of a swampy over, you know, I don't even think there was rice in it anymore, but there was water. And I scooped up the water and I drank it. And um, exactly what, like a week or 10 days later, I was I was down with typhoid. So there you go. That's how the leg and the typhoid are connected. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the leg, I, I couldn't walk, obviously. And I had another probably two hours just to get to the district center and then a whole day the next day to get to where I could get a truck. So luckily some, and it was getting to be evening. So I didn't really want to be out there in the dark and this kid didn't want to leave me, which was lovely. Somehow somebody else was coming up the path. He sent, he found a kid in a near, in in a village, not so far away, not my village, but a different village who ran down to the district center where I knew another volunteer was. She was my neighbor in that she lived only a six-hour walk away from me, but she was going to be in the district center that night as well. So he ran down, and Nepali is, some of it is sort of aspirated versus non-aspirated when you speak the language. So he came down and he said, Asa, that was my name. My Nepali name was Asa Miss because I was a teacher, so I was Miss. Um, he came down and ran into the, the the place where he knew where I had said this this other volunteer would be at this um, little hotel where we always stayed, and he said Asamis is morio, which means well he said broken, but she thought he said dead. Mm-hmm. So she was wearing like she was had had just gotten there and she was changing clothes. She was wearing shorts and a tank top, which in Nepal you might as well have been naked. Like that's not a woman cannot go out in public like that. But she ran. <laughs> she had her flip flops on too. She ran up the mountain. Probably I had waited for maybe an hour. Um, and she got there horrified. She's, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. And here you are. So I don't know quite what the, you know, I, I don't remember what the what the actual sort of, at, somehow a man put me on his back and started carrying me down the mountain. And he was probably, Nepali mountain people in the, in the, in the hills are quite tough. They're tough as hell and they're strong, but they're small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Sherpa-esque. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, barefoot, smoking cigarettes the whole time. So I was on his back and he kept like flopping me off and saying, oh, you American women, what do you eat? You're so heavy. I was like <laughs> crying like I'd rather walk on my broken leg than have you call me fat again. So <laughs> it was very trying. So anyway, finally got down to the district center where I spent the night, um, which was hard because all the bedrooms were upstairs and I was literally crawling up the stairs on my leg at that point was like swollen up and um, and then the next day they, they actually put me on a horse, which was try to get on a horse with a broken leg. It's not easy. Um, but because the district center was on one side of a river and I had to be on the other side in order to get down the valley, um, there was a suspension bridge and you've seen photos of those Nepali suspension bridges. And so I had to get off the horse. They didn't want me to ride the horse across the bridge in case he spooked and threw me into the river or whatever. Um, so I sort of hopped across the bridge on one foot and then had to get back on the horse. Um, and the funny Peace Corps part of this story is that my friend had gotten word. The district center, there was a phone, and that's where we always called our parents and whatever. From, But she had called the Peace Corps office, who had then called a volunteer who was stationed in Pokhara to have that guy come up to the, dis- to the roadhead with a taxi so I wouldn't have to get on the Tata truck, right? So he, of course, gathered some other volunteers that were around, and he got a taxi up to this place, and he was waiting. And as soon as... I rode into town, like broken, dirty, swollen leg on a horse. He jumped out, took a picture, handed me a beer and said, you know, you're here, you know, it's fine. So there's a picture of me floating out there somewhere on a horseback with a broken leg and a beer. Um, (laughs) 
so that was the, the Peace Corps part of that. And then, uh, so in the taxi, I went to Pokhara and they put me on an airplane. Um, but they had to take me on the luggage cart out from the airport to the plane, which was humiliating. And all these European trekkers were in there wondering, you know, what was going on. So by the time I finally got to Kathmandu, the Peace Corps nurse said, why didn't you just call a helicopter? We would have come to get you. <laughs> God, it never even occurred to me. You know, at that point, I was like, you know, hardened. And uh, I thought, well, that would have been easier. But no, it never even crossed my mind. So that was the broken leg story. And then right after that, you know, not long later, I, I um, got typhoid. But the funny part is, the other funny part was a few months later, I went back to Nepal. I was dating a guy in the group behind me. And so when he's COS, we were going to travel. So we actually ended up traveling overland from Kathmandu to Moscow, which is a whole different story. But um, we were in a bar in Kathmandu with a bunch of Thai Thailand volunteers. And we called them Peace Corps Light because they had things like ATM machines and electricity. <laughs> so we always thought we were a little bit, you know, more cool than they were. But anyway, they were telling this story. They said, wow, you know, we heard this story about some lady, like some volunteer, like broke her leg. And it's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> They were very impressed <clears throat> that they met in the flesh this ridiculous volunteer who had broken her leg and you're, had... you're, you're a Peace Corps legend. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Now we've talked about your service as okay. a Peace Corps volunteer. You've told us all these amazing stories. Now we're going to transition to this other story that right. you have written, uh, a piece of fiction, but based on... Real, some real life experiences, right. some that you've probably overheard from other people and right. taken and melded into a story, which right. I think is amazing. So kudos on thank your you. book, uh, The Brightest Sun. I thank you. So, so when this interview comes out uh, on March 20th will be the release of your book. Right. Yeah. Excited? Excited and nervous. It's been a long time coming. You know, publishing, as you know, is a really, really slow yeah, yeah. What what was the timeline for for when it was actually accepted? Okay, um, it was accepted probably a little more than two years ago. Wow. I yeah. So it took four years to write. It took a year to find an agent. And if there's any aspiring writers out there who want to try for publication, finding an agent is the hardest part, and it's humiliating, and it's filled with rejection, and it's pretty awful. Um, and I had a, an Excel spreadsheet that I called the spreadsheet of death. And I went through, you know, I would just research agents and I would send stuff out to them. Um, and Matt, my agent, was the 64th one that I queried. And he was the only one who said yes. Um, but it was great because ultimately he and I reworked the manuscript a little bit. So that was probably another two or three months. And then it took about nine months. It went on submission. It took about nine months to sell. Um and then I worked with the editor at Park Row for another year, almost a year, maybe nine months um, before it went into, uh, I guess, whatever, the, you know, sort of production where they then it had had it copy edited and did the cover design and all that business. Um, so it's, it's a long lead time. So I'm excited and I'm nervous, but I'm also kind of just ready for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Get it over with. <laughs> so tell us a little bit uh, about the the book okay. what, what we should know so it's it follows th- it's mainly three women i mean there's the story of their, their right. children that they come into it right uh, living in sub-saharan africa in in kenya which you said you right. lived the longest time as right. a child so that's right. really where your understanding of that country and culture comes from. absolutely what else do we need to know okay well i i grew up as i said i grew up overseas and people who grow up the way i did are called third culture kids um and essentially what that means is somebody who has a passport country um, that they are supposed to identify with. The reason third culture kids are different from immigrants is that you're always expected to repatriate back to your passport ooh, passport country. Um, and you're supposed to identify with it, and that's how people see you. But you're also supposed to make a home in the place where you're living, which ultimately means that instead of having a foot in both places, you really don't have a foot anywhere, and you are an observer of everything. Um, And you don't really claim, you can't really claim the culture and the traditions of the place where you're living, and yet you don't have the authority to claim really the culture and traditions of your passport country either. So I've always been sort of fascinated by that. Um, And I wanted to kind of figure out a way to tell that story, to tell the story of 
expatriates and, you know, why people choose to be expatriates, what that choice does to their children, um, the good and the bad. And I did actually write the book as a, as a memoir um, 10 years ago, more. And it was a, the full manuscript. And I thought, you know, I lived in Africa. I have some cool stories, whatever. Turns out I didn't have a narrative. I didn't have an arc. Um, partly because uh, my parents are nice people. You know, we had some great stories. But ultimately, there wasn't sort of a universal kind of overarching truth that I could tell through my own um, memoir. So at the age of 40, this is scary. At the age of 40, I happened into a free fiction writing class offered through George Washington University. And I happened into it through a small federal crime because I opened somebody else's <laughs> mail accidentally. <laughs> uh, the mail came, it was addressed to the person who lived in the house before, you know, who I bought this house from. Um, and I opened it without seeing it was her name. It was a flyer for a free workshop through... Um, through George Washington University. And I, it was the weirdest experience. I looked at this flyer and I knew that it was going to change my life in some way. It was very strange. And I don't say that lightly. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not somebody who has those weird experiences. And anyway, I applied and I got in and the, the teacher was a guy called Tim Johnston, who's an amazing writer. And, you know, at the time I had three kids, I had a dog, I had a full-time job, a mortgage. And I thought well, this is the perfect time for me to start writing a book. And I, it seemed so daunting to write a novel. So I started writing, I, I took my memoir and I started taking the stories that I thought were the most interesting and fictionalizing them. And to have Tim Johnston look at my work and say, you know, this is good. Like you could actually do this. Um, at the age of 40, you know, that was sort of miraculous. I didn't have an MFA and, you know, I hadn't been writing fiction. Um, so that encouragement kept me going. So ultimately... What I try to do in the book is take stories from my life, but fictionalize them to the point where there could be, um, where I could I could get across the story that I'm trying to tell, the story of expatriates and their kids, um, and how it is to live that life, but also um, through characters that I think people can identify with in various ways. So that's a very long-winded way of saying the story. <laughs> the story uh, centers around three women. Um, an anthropologist, uh, the wife of a diplomat, an American diplomat, and a Maasai woman, and sort of how their lives interact. And how they're all outsiders in a way, too, because they're expatriates. Um, and the Maasai woman is an outsider in her community because she's barren. And in her community, that's a, a big deal. Um, if you can't have children as a Maasai woman, at least, you know, again, things may have changed. The book is set in the 80s, because that's when I lived there. Um, and that was kind of how I claimed my authority, I guess, over the subject. So they're all outsiders in their own way. And, and the book ultimately, I think, is about finding a community, sort of finding a way to authentically be who you are and, and claim that. And I think over the course of writing it, because growing up the way I did, you, you end up being an observer and you end up feeling sort of not really settled in any one place anywhere. Um, as I wrote the book, I kind of wrote myself into a community, too. I've, I've ended up living here now, what, 11 years? It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Um, and so it was interesting. I think the book, as I, as I wrote the characters and had them find their way, um, I, kind of, I, I kind of did the same thing for myself. And I think it, it ended up allowing me to claim a story that up until I started writing was kind of unclaimable in the sense that, um, in the sense that, like I said, you can't, when, when you live in a, in a foreign country as a kid, it is your life and you see traditions and you see cultures around you. And yet you have the sort of luxury of being, um, you know, if something bad happens, you're going to be plucked out, you know, um, you know, that, uh, you can, you're part of it, but it's not yours in the sense that you're gonna, you have everything available to you. I mean, there's that privilege. I knew that I would be able to, to go home to America at some point, um, and go to college and have this kind of life where the, the Kenyan kids around me that I observed didn't have that luxury. So there's a privilege, but it's a privilege that sort of keeps you from being an integrated part of that culture. Um, and I always thought I was American, and yet when I came back here at 16, uh, I looked like everybody else. I dressed like everybody else. I had the same accent. 
And yet I felt more foreign here than I ever had before, um, which was strange and unsettling. And I think that's the story that, that people who grew up the way I did don't get until they, they actually have that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, you know, another term is sort of hidden immigrants because you're here and yet you have no cultural touchstones. People say, oh, you know, where are you from? Oh, I'm, you know, I was born in Washington, D.C. Oh, well, do you, you know, what school did you go to? Where the, well, I had no answers after that. You know, I didn't. Um, and it was, you know, that was a hard transition. Um, and so I, I took some of those things and I put them in the book. There is a, a, a chapter that's based around my boarding school experience, which you know, I, it was a great place. Um, I'm glad I went, but it was, that was a very, very difficult time for me to come back and, and have to sort of learn how to be an American in a way that, that I didn't want to be really. And I felt like, um, I felt different and I wanted to be different. I wanted people to see that I'd had a different life than them, that I was not just a typical, you know, boarding school kid in Pennsylvania, that I had had experiences that were dramatically different. And I felt like, it was almost having having an identity stripped away because you couldn't really you couldn't over you couldn't explain those differences right away. Um, so the book for me was kind of a way to to take those things and put them down and say I look like everybody else, but but I've had a different experience and this is what it is. And yeah, I think it allowed me to do that. And I, it's funny because I I felt I, who Isabel Allende I think said um, nostalgia is the vice of the expatriate. And she's brilliant, and she's right. But it's also kind of a weight, you know. When you, when you, at least for me, I always felt sort of a, a nostalgia and a and a yearning for this landscape, particularly and this um, life that I'd left behind that you can never really revisit. And being able to put it all on paper kind of emptied me of that. So for the first time in years and years since I can remember, once I had it all down, I felt this weird sort of freedom. So that's kind of the roundabout way of uh, of saying that it's in part there. It's autobiographical. There are certainly autobiographical aspects of it. There are some stories that are directly ripped from my life. But you know, when you write fiction, you have to tell a story, and you have to be able to have your characters have motivation for doing this, that, and the other. Um, and my way of doing that was to make them <laughs> to make them a little offbeat. They've all had challenges. They've all had uh, you know bad things happen. Um, and I, as I was telling Tyler before, I have to say that, you know, the, the parents in the book are not my parents. My parents are wonderful and nice people, but nice parents don't sell books about family. Mm, <laughs> unfortunately, no. Or maybe they do if you're a much better writer than I do. I don't know. But uh, so I had to take some liberties there. But I think ultimately, the feeling um, is the one that I that I wanted to get across. And I think that's the important part mm-hmm. for me. And I, th- I think that people who are listening who are uh, current or return volunteers will really enjoy this book, especially if they've lived in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. There were little things that came up that I was like, oh, you would only know this oh. <laughs> had you had you lived there and experienced right. it. And it's, there were these little nuances of stuff that I would catch every now and then would put a smile on my face. Uh, one, The Omo detergent oh. pops up in one second. I was like, oh, yeah. I, I forgot about Omo detergent. <laughs> right. And you, you do give a little, there's a, a shout out to, to Peace Corps right. early on, like yeah. page five, six, seven, you know, yeah. talking about the, the place where the woman is staying. Yeah. Usually, you know, Peace Corps volunteers stay there. Right. So that put a smile on my face. I wanted to put more Peace Corps into the book, actually. But if I ever get around to it, which hopefully I will, I have another book in my head that is fully centered around Peace Corps. So hopefully that'll happen one of these days. It is a, a fictionalized Peace Corps experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've also dreamed of that myself, but I yeah. don't know. Like, it's hard. It's mm-hmm. as you know, it's hard to write a book, and I think it is. people don't really think about that. I can't tell you how many times people, oh, you know, when I get around to it, I'm going to write a book. Tonight. Okay, well, good luck to you because it's not as easy as as it seems. Yeah, and the the first thing my like my mother when it was pub- my book, she's like, oh, congratulations. When's your next book? And I was like, don't, don't <laughs> yeah, even. That's the worst question no, you can possibly ask. Not ready. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also uh, sort of love the fact that I got to read this before it was published. I mean, which is sort of, sort of cool. I've never like had the opportunity to read something right. before before the masses. So thank you for for giving yeah. giving that to me, and it's been a, an excellent read. But something that I personally realized as I was reading this, uh, I was going back through my mind of how many female authors have I read? Interesting. Surprisingly. Very, 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 very few. I wow. could only come up 
with five. Wow. You are number six. Oh my God. That's nice and, to be on that list. And it's not to say that I haven't read a lot of books. My right. mother is a librarian. I grew, oh, okay. up, I, I grew up reading, but yeah. for some reason, I guess I gravitated towards like the old, old classics right. or more masculine stories. Right. So as I was reading this, a lot of it centers around right. motherhood. Exactly. And, and those relationships and, right. and, and different things with that. And it was a book that I honestly probably never would have picked right. up, but enjoyed so much because it, it gave me a lens into something right. that I otherwise wouldn't have experienced. Right. That's it, interesting. Yeah. And I was actually talking to uh, one of my roommates who is female who reads a ton. I mean, mm-hmm. she if she's not at work, she's probably reading a book. She actually had the opposite to say that she has read the vast majority right. of, of female authors. Right. So I would encourage anybody who's interested in this book, especially if you're a male, pick it, pick it up. Because uh, it's, it's, you know, if you're, you know, re- reading the back cover, you know, set in sub-Saharan Africa in the 90s, the brightest sun brings to life striking Kenyan landscape as three women grapple with motherhood, recalibrate their identities, and confront uh, unexpected tragedies and triumphs. If I was in a bookstore and I read that, sadly, before this book, I probably wouldn't have read it. Now, I think this book has sort of been the gateway of being more accepting and not right. judging a book literally by its, well, its back cover. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if... It, That's great to hear. And I, I think um, it is funny because when I look back at what I've read and I, you know, I have, well, my undergraduate degree is in poetry and my mm-hmm. other degree is also in English. But, um, but I've, I think I've read mostly women writers as well. And I think we do tend to gravitate towards stories that we can identify it's, with. It's a voice. It's a yeah. voice that, that we relate to. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I really tried not to make it like chiclet. No, and it, it is it is not. It is it is it is not. But it deals with things that are very right. uh, centered around the, the experience of motherhood. Absolutely, and I think that's the sort of common thread um, between all the women that they grapple with motherhood and daughterhood to a certain degree in different ways. Um, but there's also some violence. Mm-hmm. There's also some. Uh, there is a guy in the, uh, a guy who's a main character, in the, or he's a secondary character, but he's in there. He he has a chapter to himself, and I, I was selfishly <laughs> wanting more. Like I, I know. I want. I kind of want that book. Yeah, like, I kind of. I'm weirdly fascinated with him too. Actually, he was one of my favorite characters to write, just because I think because he's so different. I mean, I don't. I didn't. You know, he's a what they call in Kenya a Kenya cowboy, a white Kenyan. He's a descendant of colonial English people. Um, and it was interesting to write him. I also liked writing his mother, mm-hmm. um, who's this sort of doddering old woman who lives in the middle of a, a, a sort of defunct cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I don't, to be honest, I, I've sort of been thinking about how those characters came to be. And I can't tell you that the, the mother, his mother, Ruthie, her voice just kind of came to me out of nowhere. It was very strange. Um, and that chapter kind of wrote itself. And then I became fascinated with John and I, I put him in there um, and wrote about him. And, I, and I, those were fun chapters for me to write. I really did enjoy that. But yeah, I think, I think part of it is that, you know, I'm a mom and I'm a daughter. So those have always been interesting issues for me to, to deal with. And I think that one of the things people don't tell you about being a mother is that it's not always... Um, fun. <laughs> you love your kids, of course. And my three kids are, you know, the love of my life, all of them. But it's it does change your identity in a way, both for, for good and for bad. Um, and I had actually done a lot of nonfiction writing about being a mother and how that how that identity shift happens. But yeah, it was just something that was fascinating to me. But to be honest, I think the same could be said for fathers, maybe slightly in a, you know, nuanced differences. But um you know, I, I don't think you could take out the women characters and, and, you know, substitute them with dads and it would be the same story. It wouldn't. No. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there is a universal truth to some of that. And I think even maybe as a son, you could identify with some of the parent-child relationships. I mean, I, I guess I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is, it's, you know, it's definitely, you, you, you write what you know, right? Um, and Although there's, you know, I don't, there are some, we, we could talk about that for hours in a whole separate conversation, but, but I do, that was something while I was writing this book, I was fascinated by those relationships and it definitely came out. So 
there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I've already stated, uh, if you're listening, uh, buy this book. It's excellent. Uh, and where, where, where can they go to find your book? Where should they go to find out more about you as an author, what you're up to? Let it, let us know as we, we close out this interview and episode, what anything else the listeners should know? Well, you can buy the book, um, at any main bookstore. You can buy it at the giant place that is also a river, (laughs) But you can buy it in the D.C. area. You can buy it at Kramer Books, where the launch will be. Um, Politics and Prose has it. Potter's House. I think pretty much anywhere um, that sells fine books or alternative fact books, (laughs) fiction, Mm. (laughs) you can buy it. So, um, yeah, I I hope that people buy it. I hope they read it. I hope they love it. I have a website. It's uh, www.adrianbenson.com, and I will try to keep things up to date on there about upcoming events. And then hopefully, again, as I said, I have a couple other books in my head, one of which is Peace Corps Centered. So hopefully those will be coming. And if listeners uh, go to the show notes uh, for this episode, uh, all that information will be at the bottom where you can find the book in the DC area. If you choose to buy it online from a website (laughs) associated with a a river and uh, basin in uh, Brazil, uh, and anything else that they should know, we have pictures from uh, your service, uh, one when your, your father uh, visited you uh, in, in Nepal, and, and some other great photos of your, your neighbor, the water buffalo. Uh, but it's been an absolute pleasure uh, spending the morning with you, talking, one, about your service, and two, this excellent book that you have written. Thank you. I appreciate it. It has been fun, and I hope I've managed to um, pique people's interest in the book. It was fun to talk about my Peace Corps service. I haven't done that in a long time. It's been ages. Uh, I can only bore my children with the story so many times. So thank you for that opportunity. You're very welcome. (laughs) And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this show. If you want to get your hands on a free special edition signed copy of Adrian Benson's book, here's how. Be looking out for a post on the My Peace Corps Story Facebook and on the My Peace Corps Story Instagram. On those posts, it's going to tell you everything you need to do to enter the contest. One caveat, we're only going to be sending these books to a U.S. address, so sorry for any current PCVs who are listening. Uh, We'll mail it to uh, someone's home here in the United States, uh, but it is just too cost prohibitive to mail it abroad to you at this moment. Adrian is just starting out with her social media presence, so part of the contest will be Uh, liking and following to see what she's up to and what she's doing. I think you guys are going to be interested. I had a blast just sitting down with her and talking. We ended up talking for like another hour after the interview concluded, and I really, really enjoyed spending time with her at her home. If you are not one of the lucky few uh, to get one of these uh, free signed books from Adrian, buy the book. As I said already, I absolutely love this book. It's not something that I would have picked up on my own, but I'm glad I did. And I believe you will be glad as well if you buy this book. Thank you again. And remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?